When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hello, and welcome to Soccer Made in Portland on OregonLive.com and Stumptown Footy. My name is Chris Reifer, and joining me, as always, the Timbers and Thorns beat writer for the Oregonian and OregonLive.com, Jamie B. Goldberg. Jamie B., what's up? Uh, well, I'm kind of, I'm pretty exhausted from, you know, flying back and forth this weekend and then just eating way too much candy last night, uh, just getting back in time for Halloween and uh, we purchased way too much candy uh, for the amount of trick-or-treaters we had. So um, we had to make ourselves sick by eating a half of it because of that. So uh, it's been a crazy, hectic weekend um, and, and a lot of travel, but uh, obviously um, it's exciting, exciting times and uh, probably not the playoff game we wanted, but I, I think we have a lot to talk about in terms of the Timbers and playoffs right now and, and what's it going to look like heading to the second game. On the subject of trick or treating, uh, here I am, thirty-two year old, <laughs> been living on my own now for a considerable amount of time. I have never once had a trick or treater at my door. Oh, um, zero, zero in thirty-two years. I mean, I, I guess I like I don't know when I was in high school or something like that. I probably handed out candy for my parents, uh, some Halloween to like help them out or something like that. So, but I don't really count that because that was that was like pre-emancipation, uh, but post-emancipation. No trick or treaters, uh, which means if I had bought if I had bought any candy, which I did like one year, I think my first year uh, in my apartment in Portland, I bought a bag of candy because I didn't want to be that jerk that like had kids come to uh, his door with no candy, and then I just ate a whole bag of candy. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. We had, um, we had double the trick or treaters last year, so uh, wow. We basically that we had this year, so we ran out of candy. So last you get year. You, what you're saying is you guys got a reputation. Apparently, I don't know. What did you give? What did you give out last Reese's. year? Reese's. Reese's and Kit Kats. That's all that I always give out. I really should give out candy I don't like, but instead I give out the ones I like the best and then end up eating all the extra if we have them. But we ran out last year. This year we had a whole, basically a, a whole um, two, three bags left. Reese's are okay. Um, if you if you like especially Reese's heavy, because look, I mean, everybody gets Reese's. Everybody gets Reese's. Goodness gracious. Uh, so, you know, I mean, if you're a little bit Reese's heavy, I could understand why some of the kids, uh, maybe in the, in their, in their pre Halloween convention in your neighborhood were like, nah, don't, don't hit, no, don't hit the Goldberg residence. Not worthwhile. Uh, Kit Kats though, I, I think is a, is a strong, uh, play also a fan of Twix. Yeah, we had Twix uh, too, actually. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Twix. Uh, but, but I mean, for me, Starburst or King baby, um, that is that is where it's at in Halloween candy. I also I also sort of have an affinity for M and M's. Um, I'm a big fan uh, of M and M's. Like I don't care if it's peanut regular, like the peanut butter ones or or, or whatever it is. And now they have caramel ones, which is like kind of interesting. Uh, but I am a big M and M's fan. Okay, it is November first, uh, so we will not be talking about Halloween candy again until you know, like next late October or early or early November. Uh, we will in this podcast, however, we're going to be talking about the Timbers for at least one more podcast beyond this. Uh, no promises thereafter because, hey, you know, we don't do 
Uh, we don't control the outcomes of games. Uh, but nonetheless, we have one to talk about from last week and then at least one more to talk about next week. Uh, last week, the Timbers went down to the Houston Dynamo for the first leg of the Western Conference semifinal and came away with a 0-0 draw. That's been a, a very distinct pattern here in the Western Conference playoffs uh, and, 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 the, and a lot of the playoffs just in general. But 0-0 in particular in the West. No goals in 180 minutes scored in first legs in the West of the Western Conference semis. Uh, our predictions, we both got the draw right. Uh, I had a 1-1 draw with a Blanco goal from distance. Whoops. Uh, he spilled, you know, boiling or, you know, I, I think we should be accurate about this because after it was taken off the stovetop or wherever it was he was warming this water, I'm a little bit skeptical it was still 212 degrees. Uh, so I think it may have actually been a little bit sub-boiling by the time it hit his foot. But hey, Whatever. Uh, so he didn't play. Uh, you called a two-two draw with a Darren Maddox goal. Uh, again, you got the draw, but you know the goals are a bit off, and the and Maddox didn't happen. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and and give myself eleven point six three two points, uh, and you're going to get nine point seven nine one points. Jamie Goldberg is is that fair? Just I get I get just a couple more on virtue of being a one-one draw rather than a two-two. You were calling a high-scoring game. I was calling a little tighter one. Okay. All right. So I take uh, just a couple more points out of, uh, out of that one than you do. Uh, so let's start here. Not considering injuries, not considering any of those circumstances. How do you rate that result for the Timbers on a scale of one to 10? Uh, and, and, and explain why. I mean, they got the draw getting out of that first leg, still certainly all to play for in the second leg. Uh, how do you rate that as a whole for the Timbers? I think I would give it about a five. I, I think they, in terms of their performance, I, I think overall in the beginning of the game, um, they they came out with the correct game plan given the personnel they had, and I, I thought they were pretty effective against Houston. I, I think a scoreless draw is okay given how well the Timbers have done at home this season and the fact that they know they have won six games in a row at Providence Park. They've been one of the better home teams for over the last two years. They know it's a place where they can get a win. Uh, so I think a scoreless draw is a decent result for them overall, it, even putting the injuries aside. Um, but it's certainly they certainly would have wanted a draw with at least goals to get that away goal and, and make it a little bit easier on themselves coming home so they don't they wouldn't didn't have to win and, and Houston couldn't potentially uh, advance with that draw. So I, I think they say, okay, but maybe I was slightly disappointed uh, with that result if uh, you put the injuries aside. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think okay is about right, but I would probably go like a four out of 10. I mean, the zero zero nature of the draw, I think, is what is probably a bit disappointing for the Timbers because it makes it so that because they didn't get any away goal, the Timbers, and if there is any scoring in, in regulation, uh, and even if they get a draw nonetheless, uh, they, they lose, you know, they, they're knocked out. And so, uh, that just sort of takes away a lot of potential results that could get the timbers through because they didn't get at least that away goal, uh, in that draw. Obviously it's still better than a loss, uh, which is definitely a possibility when you go down to Houston. Actually, the timbers are the only team to go to Houston multiple times this year and not lose, uh, which is interesting. Uh, but, but nonetheless, you know, I mean, so, you know, on a scale of one to 10, I'd probably go a little bit of a four, a four, just because it's a little bit disappointing not to at least get that away goal and open up some, some draw results to let you advance. But nonetheless, uh, I agree with the, with more or less what you said that, Hey, look, you know, the Timbers have been good at home. 
they really haven't been uh, shut out uh, or anything like that uh, very often at home. In fact, I'm trying to think if they've been shut out at all this year at home. And I don't seem to remember. Uh, SKC. SKC did it. But that's the only team that shut that shut the Timbers out at home this year. So, I mean, you know, you're not probably uh, too terribly concerned about the Timbers not being able to score enough to win. Uh, but nonetheless, it's, it's going to be a tough game. You know, this Houston team has improved on the road in the second half of the season. They've in particular been scratching out a lot of draws on the road. So we'll see how it plays out. But would have been nice, I think, for the Timbers to, to at least get that goal uh, or get a couple goals even in, in a draw uh, and, then, and have that sort of in their pocket moving forward. So now let's throw the injuries uh, and, and the conditions and all of that in there. How would you rate the result in light of the injuries, the field, the yada, 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 that sort of made that a bit of a crazy game on that same scale of one to 10. Yeah. On on that scale, I I think I would rate it about a nine. And and I think the injuries are the biggest thing for me. I mean, the Timbers were down three starters from that game that, that were injured in that game by the 59th minute. They had had to use all three of their subs on injury replacements. And going into that game, they had two surprise absences with Blanco and, and Guzman not being able to play because of injuries. So this is a team down five starters, not to mention Fernando Adi, who they've been uh, dealing with out for the last uh, few months and got a result at a tough place to play in Houston. The, the field and those conditions obviously played a role and Houston's probably more used to this kind of conditions playing on that field than the Timbers, but that is something both teams had to deal with it deal with. For me, it's the injuries that you have to look at and say, it would have been very easy at that point for the Timbers to just kind of crumble, give up two, three goals and head home with very little chance of advancing. And the fact that instead of doing that and they were able to grind out the result and at least walk away with a scoreless draw to put themselves in a good position to still advance. I think you have to be pretty happy about that. Yeah. Eight or nine, (laughs) you know, I, I totally agree. And I think it's, it's an eight or an eight or a nine. That is really impressive. As you noted, they were missing. I mean, you know, there's no reason not to count Fernando Adi. They were missing six starters uh, for a for the meat of that game. And I don't mean necessarily the the bulk of that game because what Nagby came out in the 60th minute or so. Uh, but hey, look, those la- that last half hour is pretty darn important. Uh, and especially on the road. I mean, that is that is the toughest part of that game uh, in which the Timbers were playing extremely shorthanded. And I, and I mean extremely shorthanded. Uh, so the fact that they were nonetheless able to grind out that result, even at 0-0, I think is really, really impressive. Uh, and, and you know, I mean, in, in some ways, it's kind of a metaphor for this whole season where the Timbers have been pretty continually shorthanded. They had what? They had like 45 minutes against L.A. when they were healthy uh, and then like the first game of the season against Minnesota when they were healthy. And otherwise, uh, they haven't been healthy all year long. Uh, they have had a handful of games when they have been extremely shorthanded. And over the course of the season, they got it done. They still found a way uh, to go in and get a result, even though even if it wasn't necessarily, you know, glowingly impressive, even if it wasn't necessarily always uh, a perfect result, man, they've been able to grind out a, a fair number of those. And, and this is probably the best example of that over the course of the season. So, you know, I mean, big time credit to Caleb Porter, to the to the guys that, you know, the, the, the few that were left standing, uh, and, and, and everybody who, who made that happen, because man, that would have been, that would have been a really easy game to, to lose two or three zero. And then be coming back to Portland 
really, really feeling behind the eight ball. And and they didn't. They they kept themselves in it. They're giving themselves an opportunity to maybe get a little bit healthier the, the, this week. We'll talk about that. Uh, and and they're giving themselves a chance to come back home and a good chance to come back home and win the series. So uh, I, I am really, really impressed when you, when you sort of do the all things considered analysis uh, with the Timbers performance. Let's talk about before sort of the huge rash of injuries. Obviously, we already had Blanco and Guzman before kickoff. But let's talk about before sort of the, the blitzkrieg of injuries uh, be, uh, on, on either side of halftime hit the Timbers. What did you think of how the, that, that first 45 minutes or so of the game was going for the Timbers? Did you think it was going in a positive direction? Were you thinking, yeah, this is definitely one the Timbers can go out and win? Uh, or, or did you not like the feel of the way the game was playing out? Yeah, I, I thought it was going pretty well for the Timbers. I, I think they found a good balance between getting opportunities in, in the attack, not just sitting back and bunkering, but also being a little bit more conservative and working to prevent Houston from being all that dangerous on the counter. And I think overall it was really effective for the Timbers before all of the injuries happened. I, I think you look at that Nagby chance early in the game, had the Timbers put that away, uh, this might have been a different result. The Timbers had enough chances early on that you would have hoped they could have come away with a goal. I, I think the pitch obviously contributed to that. It just contributed to the way the game kind of went and, and I, how I, the, the way that the Timbers had to play more and more as the game went on. But I, I think in the beginning, you saw the approach the Timbers wanted and, and they thought they were executing it pretty well in, until the other factors became things that, that kind of caused them to change the game plan, the injuries, and, and the pitch as well. Yeah, I, I mean, that is more or less how I feel. I'm a little bit more ambivalent about it. Uh, I was I was pleased with the way the Timbers were, you know, creating a decent number of chances despite being pretty responsible in, in the way they, they approached uh, the game. The, the only sort of tick in the, in the negative column that I have is, is that they were just a couple times. It wasn't a ton, but just a couple times Houston was able to, to, to sort of break the timbers open just a little bit and try to attack the bylines a little bit uh, and get behind the back line. It wasn't a huge problem. It wasn't anything that was causing me a ton of stress, to be honest. And so, I mean, to some extent, it's Houston. They're just going to do that. I mean, Romo Kyoto is just going to find that uh, once or twice a game. Uh, even when you're playing well, Albert Elise, who had a very quiet day, is just going to find that. Uh, once or twice a game and so you know I mean to some extent this is probably even being a little bit nitpicky but the, there was sort of that that you know I mean Houston looked like they also could find a goal somewhere somewhere in there uh, even if the the Timbers were otherwise uh, being pretty clean uh, about the way they the way they went about defending so you know obviously the best chance of that first half really was Darlington Nagby's uh, hit uh, that he the the chance that fell early to Nagby in the what sixth or eighth minute or something like that uh, when Diego Valeri crossed from the left side into Nagby in the box, uh, but Nagby hit the ball wide. That was the best chance of the first half, and I think you everybody would agree, probably the best chance of the game. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, overall, I though I, I would say that I was I was pretty darn pleased, especially as you noted with that balance. I thought they did a really nice job. The Timbers, uh, in the buildup in particular, were doing a really good job of not committing their defensive midfielders early in, in transitional attacking phases. And what I mean by that is they did a good job of not getting stretched when they were trying to work the ball through midfield and sort of get into the attack and get onto the front foot. That is exactly, exactly where Houston likes to turn teams over, where Houston likes to create turnovers and then immediately get into that space uh, between the back line and, and between the, the, the sort of committed defensive midfielders 
the Timbers did a great job uh, of sort of using their wingers as their release points, using their wingers in transition. Frankly, in spite of that, uh, that miss, Darlington Nagby was very, very, very good in that role for the Timbers from the left wing in just getting those connections and letting the Timbers get into the attack without necessarily exposing themselves. That's really important, and that's just exactly the kind of stuff where you look at their preparation over the course of the week, you look at the game plan that Caleb Porter's uh, installed, and you look at how they're executing it, and you say, yeah, this all makes sense. This is exactly how they should go about this game. And you could definitely see, uh, you know, sort of a future or an opportunity where the Timbers could certainly come out of that game, you know, with maybe a 1-0 or a 2-0 or a 2-1 win, because they, they were at least holding their own, if not having a little bit better of the proceedings before the calamity. Um, let's talk about the field because you got to talk about the field. Uh, question from Mike, can MLS require Houston to install field turf for future games? So somewhat facetiously, uh, and what are the standards? I mean, what are these standards that MLS is, is giving team teams for field conditions? Jamie. I I mean, I, I think that MLS clearly isn't doing enough when, when they're allowing teams to play on a field like what Houston had uh, and, and has had in the both each of the last two games. I, I think there's been something like eight different competitive games on that field in the last 25 days, in, including a college football game. I, I think there has to be a level of safety. There sh- should be a level of safety and, and a standard uh, that MLS requires teams to have in order to make sure that they're putting out a good product and, showcasing the best of the league and making sure the players stay safe. But uh, Houston's field certainly wasn't what you, you'd like to see from a professional league and the amount of games that were allowed to happen in that time. I, I think that's a factor and something that needs to be looked at. And I think it was just a bad showcase for the league uh, to have a field like that. And Porter said it today. I, I mean, he felt that Chara's injury was a non-contact injury. And while he has kind of backed off not wanting to kind of disparage the, the, the field conditions as much as uh, other people have. Uh, he did say that, yeah, you have to potentially look at the field conditions in, in wondering what caused that injury. And you might have to look at the same for Mobial and Nagby. So clearly those were not safe conditions and it made for a bad, bad brand of soccer uh, on the field as well. So it definitely made for a, a bad brand of soccer, but your best answer was completely nonverbal uh, in, in, in what you, uh, you just said, because uh, when I asked the question, uh, I, I can see this because the internet has eyes into, into your house. Uh, but you know, this is sadly a podcast, so we don't have, you know, it, it's, it, it's only verbal. Uh, we, they we only get sound, but, but when I asked the question, when I asked you, what are sort of MLS's standards in Mike's question, you gave this big, like, oh, <laughs> kind of look, which is correct. <laughs> what are MLS standards? I don't think anybody knows. Because, I mean, you look around the league and you see disasters all over the place. I, I mean, look, you, you, you look in Vancouver, where they're still playing on the same turf that they played on for the 2015 World Cup. Uh, and, and it is clearly very, very worn. It is clearly very hard now. Uh, and that's because it's not only had... Uh, World Cup games and it's uh, in, in Whitecaps games, but it's also had BC Lions games and all of that. And, and it clearly needs to be replaced. It has not been, and it's a bad surface. Look, you 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 look at Houston. 
I, I think we, we've covered that pretty well, but bad surface. Clearly not ready. Clearly not the, the kind of surface on which you can play a good soccer game. And clearly not the kind of surface that guarantees the safety uh, of the players on it. You look a couple weeks ago at the, at the surface in San Jose. Terrible surface. Guys slipping and sliding all, all over the place. And it's not like there had been sort of a, a massive deluge of rain or anything like that to cause it. It was just a bad surface. You look at, at DC. I mean, that surface at RFK basically all season was god awful it was terrible had i mean visible visible pock marks uh that they can't you know throw out some excuse about bermuda grass uh, on it it was just that bad uh and, and you could see divots basically from april uh march and april through october it was terrible and people sort of laughed it off because <laughs> whatever rfk but look i mean that's not acceptable you can't have that in a professional league that takes it seriously Look at NYCFC uh, and, and, and the ridiculous baseball setup that they've had uh, both at Yankee Stadium and now at City Field because they, they can't figure out uh, which side of the subway series they want to be on. I, I mean, you look around MLS and you see just absolutely calamitous, uh, you know, field situations coming up on a pretty consistent basis in multiple different places. This is a place where MLS just has no standards. And, and, and what happens when MLS has no standards that is at least enforcing? You get things exactly like you saw from Houston. You get stadiums that are scheduled, that are packing in events to raise res- revenue without getting pre- pressure from their MLS tenants to make sure the field is in good enough condition to be playable. And the, and the simple reality is when MLS is sort of letting this go, there's an economic incentive to do this. There's an economic incentive to have all of these other things in there, to have international friendlies and Liga MX games uh, in the middle of October when you're trying to have uh, a quality playing surface for meaningful MLS competition because somebody's got to make that buck. The BBVA Compass Stadium has to pay to keep the lights on, and so they're going this route in doing so. So what's the, what's the response? What's the response to this? MLS needs to set out standards, and they need, they need to start finding places that don't meet them. And they can't just be rink-a-dink, you know, little fines that are sort of the cost of doing business. It has to make it economically prohibitive to intentionally schedule things. To, and, 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 to, and, and to sort of do things within your control that do not produce a good enough surface to play on. And hey, I know a lot of people don't like turf. And frankly, I don't prefer turf either. I would prefer a good grass field at Providence Park. But Jamie, I'll ask you this. When was the last time you watched a game at Providence Park and thought the turf, the, the, the surface itself, was sort of, sort of a storyline in the game? Yeah, it, it's not. And I, I think you you even saw that um, when Henri was in the league, he would play at Providence Park. MLS players consider Providence Park's turf to be one of the better ones in the league. And, you know, it's not that you know, that anybody then is saying, oh, this is the best surface in the league or this is, uh, or, or this is even preferable to grass. No, but it's acceptable. It's perfectly playable. It is a perfectly fair, safe surface to play on. But the reality is you look several other places around the league and you can't say that on any consistent basis. And, Look, I mean, you know, either MLS is going to get serious about this or they're not. Uh, and they, it is clear that at this point they are not uh, very serious about it. So that's unfortunate. Um, okay. The penalty decisions. Uh, there were two penalty decisions in this game, that, that each of which had a good amount of controversy. The first one, Laris Mabiala took down Albert Elise in the box. It was initially called a penalty uh, as, as referee Robert Sabiga pointed to the spot. That, however, turned around uh, after a VAR replay. Uh, Sabiga ultimately found that, that Mabiala was clean through to the ball and did not foul Elise. 
What was your your sort of take on that first one? We'll take them one at a time, that first one, before we move on to the second. Yeah, that, that was my take as well. Um, and, and so I think Farr got it right, that, that he was clean through to the ball, and, and it wasn't uh, ultimately a foul. So I, I think it was a bad call to begin with. I, I'm a little bit concerned that the referee kind of made that decision knowing he was going to go to VAR because immediately when the Timbers started to complain, he told them, don't, don't worry, we're reviewing it. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and it, it, it's not like he'd had time to already yeah. communicate with his his, uh, his video assistant referee, Chris Penso. It was like seconds after he made the call, yeah. Timbers started going crazy and he goes, take it easy, take it easy. We're going to review it. Yeah. So so that aspect of it, I, I didn't like because I don't want to see VAR being used as, as a um, excuse for referees just to make calls and when there's any possibility and then just use VAR to check to see if it's possibly right. I, I want the referees to try to call the game correctly. So that was a little bit concerning to me. And I, I think raises another question about the use of VAR uh, as we move forward. But I, I do think ultimately uh, that was the right call. I agree. And I want to go into two sort of little specifics about the call. The first is they, you know, there, there was some question in my mind, although I was pretty convinced after looking at the various angles that, uh, that, that Mabiala did not get sort of uh, what would have, I, I suppose, been at least his left foot or his front foot uh, as he was coming through the tackle. It looks like there may have been some relatively incidental contact on it, but not, not enough that, that knocked Elise off balance or, or that was ultimately what made Elise fall. Uh, and, and in fact, it wasn't even entirely clear whose foot hit whose uh, because it looks like they basically got there at the same time. So I didn't like that by itself would not have been enough for a foul. And so I, I was pretty comfortable with, with sort of the front side of the play in that regard. The backside I thought was a little bit more interesting because you had a lot of folks on Twitter and even uh, Glenn Davis, who was calling the game uh, regularly, the, the, the dynamos play by play guy, but does uh, also does very good work for uh, Fox soccer, Fox sports, excuse me. Um, and, and he, he was sort of concerned about the backside, about Laris Mabiala's back leg, perhaps in, in what he called a scissoring motion. Uh, I, I mean, the, the thing that wasn't pointed, pointed out and hasn't been pointed out among the folks that are sort of of the, the scissor tackle theory of why it was a penalty, uh, is that it wasn't a scissor tackle. Uh, Mabiala didn't bring his back leg through. In fact, if you watch the tackle, he actually takes his back leg up in what is a pretty clear concerted effort not to bring his back leg through so that he doesn't come through at least on the backside uh, and thereby create a, a dangerous play that would have very justifiably been called uh, a, a foul, even if uh, even if he, he otherwise got through clean on the ball. So I actually think Mabiala did a pretty good job of avoiding that. That said, that was a really, really high-risk tackle from Laris Mabiala. Uh, and, and if you watch the, the broadcast or watch the replay of this and, it, and you watch it all the way through, cause it's kind of long cause it, cause it's one of those VAR replays. And so even on the MLS website, it's like a three and a half or four minute kind of ordeal. Uh, but in, in sort of the last 30 seconds or so, Stu Holden, I thought made the best point about this, which is that Mabiala didn't need to do that. He was in position. He was goal side of uh, Elise. Elise had a tough angle. Uh, Jeff Ananella was there. There was nobody that was, that was sort of in imminent danger that he could have hit in the box. Uh, it wasn't a great goal scoring opportunity. And, uh, and, and given where Mabiala was, given where Adanella was, that all things, you know, it is overwhelmingly likely that the Timbers are able to, to, to manage that situation at very least by putting it out for a corner, by blocking the shot uh, or, or having Adanella save uh, any shot, even if it's on target. And so, I mean, this definitely is a situation if you do want to criticize Mabiala, 
where you're, he's being a little bit overly aggressive there. Uh, he doesn't need to go in on that tackle. He doesn't need to take that risk. And it was a huge risk. That would have been a very easy one to get wrong. Uh, and if he gets it wrong, it's absolutely a penalty. No questions asked. Point to the spot. Uh, and, and, and so I do think there is, the, there is probably that element where, where that was, you know, even regardless of, of, uh, of Sabiga ultimately getting it right, that was a mistake on his part. The second penalty. This was Darren Maddox uh, sort of doing a very Darren Maddox thing, <laughs> getting onto the ball in, in, in the box. Uh, Tyler Derrick came out to make a play on it. Maddox touched the ball away just before Derek got there. Derek took out uh, Maddox. I am, I think he never touched the ball. Uh, he may have touched it after coming through Maddox, <laughs> um, but nonetheless, it is it, it is I think pretty crystal clear in the in the replay that Maddox certainly got to the ball first, uh, and, and that Derek had to go through him to get to it. What was your take on the play? Again, it's not a great goal scoring. Uh, chance Maddox is sort of going the wrong way. He's off to, to the, to the side of the goal. The referee had just <laughs> decided not to give one on the other end about 10 minutes before all of that. Uh, you know, Sabiga decided not to give it. And in fact, didn't even review it, uh, it, it for the Timbers penalty shout. What did you think of that whole situation? Yeah, I, I think you're right that it wasn't a good goal scoring opportunity and had Derek not done that, it, wasn't likely necessarily that Maddox was going to be able to find a goal to begin with, but that doesn't matter. That that's not part of the, the roles that, that he has to absolutely have a goal scoring opportunity um, that's denied in that situation. When you're fouled in the box for it to be a penalty, if he's fouled in the box, it should be a penalty. And, and I think that was a foul. I I'm surprised it wasn't reviewed. And I think, I, I do think that a big reason why it wasn't reviewed is because of the knowledge that the referee had that he had just disallowed a penalty on the other side. I, I think this is one of those let's even it out uh, type calls. And, and I don't think that's very fair. I, I think if you're going to be using VAR, let, let's get the plays right. Even though it might make the Houston fans in Houston uh, upset to have one penalty award to the Timbers that they feel is similar to the penalty that wasn't awarded on the other end. I think these are different because as you said, uh, Derek doesn't, gets the ball. I didn't see a touch on the ball. Maybe he gets to it, as you said, after he goes through Maddox, but he absolutely fouls Maddox in route to trying to get to the ball. And that's a foul in the box. That's a penalty. And I was pretty shocked that it wasn't reviewed uh, unless you're deciding that, yeah, let's even it out. And that's what the referee was doing. And, And the lack of review is to me the most confusing thing. I mean, I like, I just can't, Imagine, be, and, and you know, I mean, you can see, you could see that Sabiga put his hand up to his ear to listen to whatever Chris Penso had to say, uh, and yeah, but that that very probably was, frankly, almost certainly was review complete, go forward, um, and I like, I just don't see how you could watch that play and reach that conclusion. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I think whenever you watch it closely, it, it gets pretty clear that, that it was in fact a foul. And it's one that you see pretty routinely given heck. I mean, I have argued before and I still very much believe that if you wanted to change the rules so that not every foul in the box was a penalty, this should definitely be one that is not a penalty. When a guy is, is not in sort of any sort of promising goal scoring position, uh, there's sort of a 50, 50 ball or so. Uh, and, and the goalkeeper is, is half a step late. I would be fine if that was some sort of indirect free kick or something like that. 
uh, from that spot because I mean it, it, it I don't know it, it's just a, a penalty to some extent feels like it's a it's a kind of an unjust sanction uh, and a game changing sanction for something that really probably shouldn't have been a terribly game changing play, but. You know, as you pointed, the rules are the rules, and and the the point of VAR should be to get it right. And I, frankly, I if that's what Chris Pinsa was trying to do, uh, or if that's what Robert Sabigo was trying to do uh, in the way they called that game or that that play, I I'm kind of at a loss. Uh, but look, I, you know, I mean, I, I wrote about this on Stumptown Footy, and it is absolutely true. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm sure you've had these conversations too. When, you know, when the cameras are on, when the recorders are on, everybody's very politic uh, when they're talking about the, this kind of stuff. And then they say all the right things, and that's good. They should say the, those right things. When the cameras turn off, this is probably the number one comment that I get about referees and, and refereeing in general, and in particular MLS referees. And it's that they referee sort of the, the game more than they referee the play. They referee the, the, the sort of situation of the game, whether it's a particular team leading, a particular team trailing. They, ref, they referee to even it up. Or, or a call that was made a few minutes ago, they referee to even it up. So if they just gave a penalty on one end, the whistle's going to be an awful lot quicker on the other end. If they didn't give sort of a questionable one on one end, you're going to have to absolutely get mugged in the other box in order to get one. Uh, if, if a team is leading man, that other team is just going to have a little bit quicker whistle in, in, in their favor. And, I mean, I have heard this from any number of folks with whom, whom I've talked about this, uh, Portland and, and otherwise. And, and, I mean, players, I mean, coaches, I, you know, I mean, basically run the gamut of people that work in and around MLS, and this is the single most common comment that I've heard. And, look, I mean, when you see something like that happen, it's hard to disagree with them, isn't it? I mean, it's hard when you see something like this. It's hard to say, oh, that's just you know the the same old complaining about about refereeing because well, there's there's some proof in the pudding. Do you do you sort of agree with that kind of a, a assessment of things? Yeah, yeah, I, I think I, I've heard that comment too, and it is. Um, I mean, that's what I was saying. That's how I feel like this play. That's the logical way I read how these two plays were called because otherwise it, it just seems like they didn't get it right. And somehow VAR completely missed uh, the, the foul on Maddox. Um, it, for me, it feels like they were just trying to even it out uh, given the, the controversy of the first call and that they made the decision to call the play, the second play that way because of that. And yeah, this is a complaint I think we've come across multiple times and it seems to be the way that MLS referees are approaching the games. Now, I want to talk about one uh, particular player that I thought was particularly great in this game, uh, especially on the defensive side of the ball. He was excellent. Uh, had a number of very, very important interventions uh, that, that certainly contributed to the Timbers' uh, back line, keeping that clean sheet. Uh, and that's Elvis Powell. He was excellent defensively in, the, in this game. Uh, and, and the question I have for you, Jamie, I, he is my man of the match. Do you agree uh, and and the second uh, part of that, and probably more important part of that, is do you think he is now sort of a surefire starter for he, from here until the end of the playoffs? Yeah, I think he was my man in the match as well. I, I think, uh, as you said, I think he led the Timbers in tackles. I think he was a big reason why the Timbers were able to grind out that result. I, I don't know where they would be if we had a different performance from Powell or, or maybe even if Zarek Valentin had been in there. I think he was very important to this game. And 
Uh, it might have been the best performance he's had, at least defensively, since he came back into the lineup. I think he is a starter from here on out, but I don't think Pal is is a player who has guaranteed himself a starting spot yet. If he comes out and has a flat performance in the next game and the Timbers somehow advance anyways, I, I think Caleb Porter will look seriously at that. He knows that Pal can be inconsistent. And so if he sees that inconsistency out of Pal and knows going forward in the playoffs where every game matters, I, he, I don't think he will continue to ride Pal and keep starting him if he sees any inconsistency. So yes, I think he will start the next game. I think he will continue to start it as long as he plays like this. But I, I wouldn't say it's guaranteed for him by any means. The question for me is whether that hook is really one game. Uh, and, you know, I mean, to some extent, this might be academic because if Alvis has a bad game, there's every possibility that Timbers, as a result of that, <laughs> wouldn't be moving on. Um, but, you know, I mean, assuming that the, the Powell came out, struggled on the weekend against Houston, but the Timbers nonetheless found a way to advance, I'm not sure if the hook would be... I mean, if it were awful, if it were just terrible and the Timbers is like, you know, all in spite of it all found a way to advance. I think I would agree with you. If he come out, came out and sort of just had a, a frustrating, you know, subpar game, uh, but nothing that was that was particularly egregious. I'm not sure the hook is one game is, is going to come after one game anymore. I think he's shown enough uh, over the course of, yes, admittedly, just these last, uh, what, three or four weeks but he has shown enough over the course of the stretch uh, that Porter may be willing to stick with him uh, now for the, for the, for, you know, I mean, for the, the stretch, however long that is uh, as long as he doesn't sort of completely fly off the rail. So I'm not sure he has to come out and, and sort of affirmatively earn the spot. I think maybe he has a, you know, some form of incumbency, even if it's not a terribly strong form of incumbency uh, at that spot, because, well, frankly, I mean, in this last month or so, I think he's played some of the best soccer he's played as a Portland Timber. And that's, you know, I mean, something that that I don't think Caleb Porter will want to end uh, just with one sort of, you know, below average performance. So certainly something to keep an eye on, assuming the Timber season is longer than just, you know, 90 minutes on Sunday. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think you, this is, I did not see this coming. <laughs> I didn't see Powell getting his starting spot back at all. Uh, I didn't see Powell holding on to his starting spot when it came back, and I and I think he's now at a point where it's it's his spot. Um, okay, it is time now for the Fernando Adi Memorial Injury Report that has a lot more names on it this week. Um, <laughs> uh, let's start though with the old familiar Fernando Adi. We did get a little bit more information uh, about him this week. He came through a a started tongue in cheek, but turned more serious a Twitter conversation between uh, me and Merritt Paulson. But the, the basic, and then you got to elaborate on it a little bit today. Uh, so so correct me if I get any of this wrong with your additional reporting from today. But over the weekend, or sometime over the weekend, uh, Fernando Adi went down to L.A. to see a specialist. It looks like his uh, his injury at some point either evolved or or the diagnosis changed from being just a grade one hamstring strain uh to then becoming tendon issues which as you reported in some further detail today uh sort of down at the bottom of the hamstring where it connects in with the back of the knee for lack of a you know more medical term uh and 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 that that has been what has sort of taken what was expected to be a you know one or two or three week thing into now what is a three or four month kind of deal 
the the results from that is the, the Timbers feel more confident in sort of their timeline, it sounds like, uh, than they were before. But nonetheless, it sounds like Adi is three-ish weeks away uh, from being back on the field for the Timbers. Did I get all of that right? And and what are sort of the ramifications from your understanding of things? Yeah, I, I think that uh, sums it up pretty well. I, I mean, Caleb didn't put really a timeline on it at all today. He kind of said he could be this week or down the road. Luckily, we have that 15-day break between the, the conference semifinals and conference championship if, if they were to advance. Um, so that's kind of how he phrased it. I think what you were told by Merritt Paulson makes a little bit more sense. I, Caleb's probably just staying a little bit vague with the timelines as um, I think he's tended to do now that Audie's timeline has changed so much. Um, so much, but yeah, it, it sounds like they do feel a lot more confident in, in just a rehabilitation plan for him and, and kind of where they're at in, in the timeline. Now that he's seen the specialist, I, I think it's both the tendon issues uh, and also building up strength, uh, in that area moving forward because uh, he's been out so long and he's had problems obviously, um, with the hamstring. I think you start to develop weaknesses as well. So Caleb Porter also pointed to that as something that needs to happen, just building up more strength uh, as he also continues to rehab from the injury and get that back um, to full strength as well. Now, there are some folks out there who don't, who aren't buying this whole injury thing uh, and who aren't buying the whole hamstring, schmamstring, back in the knee, schmack of the shmee, uh, you know, sort of talk and think that we're all, you know, you and me, we're, we're just sheeple, uh, just swallowing whole, whatever the, the, the masses are, are, are selling us. They, they, they got the black helicopters up there. They got the Zapruder film. Uh, they, they, they got all this, that stuff and they know the truth is out there. So our good friend Cider man, uh, by the way, uh, who's six degrees. I always very much enjoy, uh, on, on Stumptown footy. But our good friend Sideman wants to know about the Audi cover-up, if you know what I'm saying. How many people in the Timbers organization do you think are lizard people? He, he says, I mean, Barry Paulson, obviously, right? I mean, he, you know, he's tall, he's skinny. The, looks just like an alien. You know, I mean, if you were if you were to identify anybody in the Timber, Timbers that was an alien, you know, I mean, you're going to select the tall, skinny guy. We've all seen Men in Black, right? Uh, but, but along with, other than that, who else? Who are your other lizard people uh, in, in the Timbers organization, Jamie? Well, well, I think the lizard people have to be running the show, right? You got to have the whole the whole front office there. Gavin, Caleb, Merritt, they've, they've infiltrated. They're, they're just running, running the organization from every angle. But it goes deeper than that. And, and, here, and here's how I know that. Uh, the, the person who like, shares your first name with a different spelling, Jamie Chin, uh, who, who works in the public or in the, in the PR shop, uh, for the tempers. I do got to say, you know, I, I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't know what I was looking at. Uh, but in light of the, in light of this, I, my, my eyes have been uncovered, but he, uh, a few weeks ago wore a suit with a turtleneck under it. And I mean, look, we know that, it, that, it, that in, in the year of the Lord, 2017, no human is going to do that. Right. And so I, I think that that is, that is pretty, pretty clear evidence that the infiltration of the lizard people goes substantially deeper uh, than just, you know, your Merrick's, Merritt's and Gavin's and Mike Golub's. Uh, Jamie Chin is, is, is infected, and it has reached the communications department. Uh, 
That that was a very like inside thing. Uh, so for everybody who you know, yeah, we're moving on. Uh, David Guzman, Jamie, what do we know? <laughs> um, no, okay, sorry, more serious. Um, with, with Guzman's injury, it, it sounds like it's a knee sprain. It sounds like he did not train last week. Um, and he was not in training today. I saw him on the sideline working with the trainer on, on some rehab stuff. To me, that's not promising, but we do still have a few more days in the week. And Caleb Porter uh, did not really give us an update on any of the players today in terms of timeline, in terms of whether they'll be in this weekend. Um, but if he can get back into training, uh, maybe. So I, I think you just have to call that one questionable right now. Yeah, I think questionable is probably fair. You know, ordinarily, if a guy wasn't training on Wednesday before a Sunday game, we would be saying very much on the doubtful side of questionable. Uh, because usually the Timbers are definitely going to want a guy to have, you know, a couple or three days of training before they're going to throw him into a game. But with Diego Chara out, a little foreshadowing there. Um, I'm not very subtle with my foreshadowing, by the way. Uh, but with Diego Chara out, uh, that that those kinds of preferences are out the window. Uh, if Guzman is healthy enough to go, he will go. So I think uh, it's probably sort of a true questionable uh, at, at this point. Because if he if by Sunday that knee is feeling better enough where he can conceivably play... He will play because there's no tomorrow. Uh, Sebastian Blanco, what do we know about him? Yeah, um, as I reported before the game, he spilled boiling or close to boiling water. Thank you. Thank you very much. Finally. (laughs) And he suffered second degree burns. He, He had been back in training even after that happened last week. But I think the pain in his foot and I think to to get detailed. Uh, I think the skin peeling off uh, caused it. So it was too much pain uh, by the time that that Houston game rolled around and he wasn't able to play. So I I think for him, it's just a matter of whether or not he can wrap that uh, foot up in a way that's comfortable enough to play and and whether another week is enough time for that to happen. I, I think it's plausible that that an, a week is enough time to heal just enough from burns but that does have a lot to do with just whether he can wrap it up, whether his skin is peeling or what's it, how much, uh, you know, of the skin is exposed and in pain um, in, in terms of whether or not he's going to be able to go. But I do think in terms of burns and one more week uh, is a significant amount of time. So questionable, but maybe a little hopeful. You, Jamie, you like did not spare any details there. Uh, do you, yeah, do you, I know. do you want to like have an opportunity to, to talk more about burned skin and like peeling no, and stuff like that? Maybe if you want to throw in some pus the, just to make sure I, our, our listeners aren't sufficiently good. I did see the out. picture and it, it wasn't uh, of his foot and it wasn't great. Oh, so you've seen, you, you, you have the receipts, so to speak. So we don't need any Sebastian Blanco, you know, conspiracy theories out there. Uh, Jamie can verify it's a burn. It doesn't look great. Um, yeah, Laris Mabiala, what do we know about him? Good. I, I will not go into extensive details on any of these other ones. <laughs> um, Laris Mabiala has a hip injury. I, I talked to him after the game. He said he wasn't feeling great, but he had not been evaluated at the point I talked to him. He was going in at that point to, to go see, I guess, the team medical staff uh, and figure out where he was at. Um, hip injury does not sound great, though, when you're talking about a six-day turnaround. So I... I uh, while I, Caleb Porter labeled everyone as questionable, I, if if I'm going to speculate, I'd say he might be closer to doubtful. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. More on the doubtful side of questionable for Laris. You know, the only thing I want to sort of add in context to that, 
uh, is the cinematic combination that we did see between Liam Ridgewell and Roy Miller was in the pre-Laris Mabiala era by far the Timbers' best uh, cinematic combination. I think they played five games together. Only they, they conceded six goals over the course of those five games, but four of those six goals were in that meltdown at uh, Montreal, which was not about the center back combination as much as Diego Chara sort of losing his head, the Timbers going down a man very early and, and, and the game being away from them from, the, from thereafter. So, you know, otherwise, I mean, it, it, look, the Timbers had three shutouts in their first 25 games. Two of them uh, were with that center back combination. So as for that, I, I mean, if you're talking about something uh, that can be covered over the course of a couple of games, if they can get healthier in other spots, that doesn't cause me a ton of stress. But I agree with you. We're not like we are. I, I will go so far as to say almost definitely not going to see uh, Mabiala just based on what we know of the injury. Uh, we're almost certainly not going to see him uh, on the weekend, and I think would be a, a question going forward. Uh, Diego Char, who is out. Jamie, what do we know about the Diego Char, who is definitely out for the rest of the playoffs? Again, my foreshadowing, yeah, um, my foreshadowing he, is very ham-handed. <laughs> yeah, he has a broken foot, so um, he he's absolutely out uh, for this series. Uh, most likely, also the conference uh, championship. I, I, I think you can put MLS Cup as a very, very much of potentially if he heals very quickly, but it, it's not a simple um, injury to heal from. It's much better than something some of the things we were speculating about at first um but it wouldn't be shocking at all if he's just completely out for the rest of the playoffs and now finally darlington nagby i think we can all agree and and, and certainly hope that last is, is least here but what do we know going into the game uh jamie about uh about nagby's condition going forward yeah um I, initially after the game it was reported as a hamstring and obviously that was just an, a wrong initial report that it, it's actually a calf um I think you just have to mark that one as questionable. I'm not sure when you look at a calf, uh, whether or not he's going to be back. He wasn't out at train today, but no, none of the players were except for essentially a group of two, two guys, uh, training and, and then the Guzman and Audi doing rehab on the sideline. The rest of the guys were inside doing yoga and, and, uh, um, gym work uh, as far as I know. So I didn't see him, but that doesn't really mean anything. Uh, but I think that one's just going to be up in there because I, we're really not sure uh, at this point where he's at. Yeah, and and the feeling I get is sort of on the more optimistic side of up in the air uh, about him. But I, I definitely agree with up in the air. I, it, you know, <laughs> I certainly have nothing to report saying he's definitely going to play. Uh, it is it is very much a question, uh, even if perhaps a, a somewhat happier question than say a Laris Mabiala. Uh, question from Michael. Uh, who wants to know of Nagby, Mabiala, Guzman, and Blanco, if you could only have one available for Sunday's match, who would it be? Uh, for for me, it's Guzman, uh, because I, I think it, the Timbers are going to be in a hard spot if Guzman, Chara, and Mabiala are, are all out, um, particularly just having Guzman and Chara out and having to have two backup players at defensive midfield, I think is going to make a huge difference for the Timbers. So I think they really want to get Guzman back on um, in there, have one of their defensive midfielders uh, on the field uh, against a good Houston counterattacking um, and good potent attacking team. And so I think of those players, as you point out, Miller and Ridge will have been a decent center back pairing. Uh, so I think of those players, you 
want to save some of the defensive midfield and get Guzman on the field? This is hard. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm going to say this is really hard. Uh, hmm. I'm going to go ahead and say Darlington Nagby. And the reason I'm going to say that uh, is because he can, he can give the Timbers a couple different things. Uh, look, I mean, you know, Lawrence Olam is, is going to be the six, and I think he's more or less trustworthy in that spot. Uh, if you have Nagby, you can start him as the eight if you want to have a little bit more central work, uh, or you can put a Moby Okugo there uh, and, and, and put Nagby up at the wing to pair with Diego Valeri and Darren Maddox. Uh, but the big thing is he, was, he would give you the ability to move that around over the course of the game. So, for example, if you started him on the wing and the Timbers came out and got a couple goals, uh, or, or excuse me, if you, if you started him in the, in the, centrally and the Timbers came out and got a couple goals, you could improve yourself defensively by sticking maybe an Amobi Okugo in there, going with the double six and putting Nagby on the wing uh, to work with Valeri to try to, to, try to go uh, get that winner. And, and he would just sort of give you that maneuverability, that, uh, that ability to sort of change the shape and change the feel during the course of the game that I don't think you would necessarily have if you went with any, if you got any of the other guys back. So if I had to take one and only one, and that is not even close to being an, an optimal thing. This would still be sort of a, a, a tough straights kind of deal. Uh, but I think I would go with Nagby if I had to choose uh, any of the four. Uh, but I agree with you. Guzman, incredibly important. I think Sebastian Blanco is also very, very important. Uh, and and if, if the Timbers can get those three back, to be honest, I'll feel pretty good uh, about their chances going into this game. If they don't get all three back, I think I'll feel somewhere on the spectrum of nervous. Uh, going into uh, the second leg against the Dynamo. Uh, today we found out, just this afternoon, we found out that Tyler Derrick, Dynamo goalkeeper, was suspended uh, as a result of a, of a domestic violence arrest on, on, it sounds like Tuesday morning, Monday late night, maybe Tuesday night, sometime in the Monday to Tuesday range. Uh, he was arrested on domestic violence charges. He's been suspended pending a league uh, and, and police investigation, obviously. Uh, Joe Willis will be the, uh, the, the goalkeeper that will, that'll step in for, uh, the dynamo. He has eight starts on the year, uh, a goals against average uh, of about a goal in three quarters, which is not great. Even worse, his, his save percentage is down in the low to mid fifties, which as best I could tell is the worst of any goalkeeper, uh, that sort of has an equivalent or greater number of starts that he has. So yeah, uh, how significant do you think this the this sort of changes uh, for the Dynamo? Yeah, I think it's pretty significant. Um, Derek was the MLS Player of the Month for October, so so you're looking at a guy that's been in his best form recently, and a, and a goalkeeper can come up and change the game. I think ultimately it might not be quite as important as maybe another position um, potentially. I think if you're going to get, if you're going to put a goal, if you're out there, you're going to expect whoever it is to come up with the basic saves. It's going to be the, the big saves, the, the ones that other goalkeepers might not get that that's going to make the difference. Um, potentially the Timbers are going to be able to get a goal in that way in something that a tough save for a goalkeeper to make that Derek might've been able to pull something off. Um, but overall, it, it kind of depends on what kind of shots and things you're going to get. I, I, I think it's going to be significant, but maybe not a game changer. That's perfectly fair. I mean, you know, it's not something that's going to sort of change the dynamo structure or take them out of their game plan uh, or anything like that. But, you know, I, I, I agree with you that Derek has been in, and he's, he's a guy who was sort of inherently very streaky uh, and he's been very much on the good side of that. 
uh, recently. And so, you know, losing him uh, for, for, for this game for very, you know, I mean, bad reasons, uh, but, you know, very w- correct reasons. He, he should not play. This is something that should be resolved with his, him not on the field. Uh, but, but losing him for bad reasons is not good for the, the Dynamo, especially considering the drop-off uh, between he and Willis. Um, okay, let's talk. Let's take a quick whip around the league because there are, of course, other first legs going on. Uh, all of the first legs are now complete. Uh, as we noted, the, the, the Whitecaps and the Sounders tied 0-0. Uh, TFC went to New York Red Bulls and won 2-1. Uh, the Timbers, of course, drew uh, Houston 0-0. Uh, and then just last night, uh, the Columbus crew uh, put four uh, up on NYCFC, who responded with one goal of their own. Um, let's do some awards. Best game. What was the best game of those four uh, that you that you saw? Yeah, I, I think the best game was uh, Columbus, uh, their win over New York City FC. And I, I think Columbus has been... Uh, the most fun team to watch so far in, in the playoffs. If you look at both their games, I, I think both of those were exciting uh, matches so far. So it, there's been some very dull MLS Cup playoff games, but uh, if you're following the crew, uh, which I think a lot of people are right now, uh, given um, all the drama around the potential move to Austin, if you're following the crew, um, they, they're they're putting a show on for Columbus and their city right now. So um, that's the game I'm going to go with. I agree with you, and and the reason I I actually thought that was a better game than perhaps even this because normally you see a four one game and you're like oh that was a laugher, uh, but this one was it was actually had some inherent drama to it. Uh, the reason is you know so it was a a really really good first half. Uh, the crew came out one zero on top at halftime, and and frankly we're fortunate to do so. NYCFC had a good number of chances uh, and very well could have easily uh, scored a couple goals in that in that first half and made it a very different game. So dramatic first half. Uh, Alexander Cayenne comes out early in the second half and gets just an absolutely boneheaded red card, just totally unnecessary uh, elbow uh, to, if my memory is serving me correctly, Justin Miram, uh, and and was was properly sent off after VAR, uh, and and from there it was just all all crew for you know probably fifteen or twenty minutes or so. Uh, they were up a man. They they created chances. They they put in. Uh, a couple goals. They were up 3-0, and it looked like, I mean, you're just looking at this game, and you're just like, man, this series looks over. And then NYCFC kind of came back. Uh, not only did they get a goal by way of David Villa, uh, but they also, they frankly, I mean, looked like they could find a second goal. And that's a point where, you know, I mean, you're thinking, hey, 3-1, NYCFC's on the road. They've got one away goal. If they get one more and they only have a one goal deficit plus two away goals to their credit uh, going back to Yankee Stadium, they might actually be in in pretty strong position coming out of uh, coming out of out of this game at Crew Stadium. They weren't able to get it. Uh, the crew uh, in, in sort of the dying moments uh, tacked on one more by way of Harrison Awful. Uh, and, and that sort of put put, I mean, probably, frankly, the series to bed. Uh, but also the game, but there was there was definitely a, a decent amount of drama sort of baked into what you know by the scoreline just looks like a laugher of a game. Okay, worst game. I think this one's pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, um, if you wanted to see the worst of MLS and how bad a soccer game can be, you just tuned into Seattle Vancouver, which I made the terrible mistake of doing instead of watching um, that part of the World Series. I, I don't know why I decided to finish that game before turning the World Series on um, because. 
that was really boring. It, it, especially after flying all day to Houston, I, I basically just wanted to go to sleep after that game. Yeah, a zero zero one shot on goal, uh, which is suboptimal, uh, and just I mean, and that one shot on goal. The, the only the only moment of, of real drama in that game, uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, was was when Kendall Waston almost put a ball in his own net and actually put one uh, off his own crossbar. Uh, so yeah, that was absolutely awful. It was atrocious. Two teams that really didn't look like they had much of anything in, in impetus and going forward. And that, you know, I mean, it, it was sort of the caricature, uh, of a, a first leg game and yeah, that, it, that was, uh, yuck, that was terrible. The, definitely the wrong call. Uh, cause that was game five in Houston. That was one of the craziest baseball games ever. Uh, and, and I missed a good chunk of it because I watched a like absolute stalemate. Basically two teams stand on either side of the field and look at each other uh, up in Vancouver. So that stunk. All right, MVP. Uh, what is the best individual performance that you have seen in the playoffs or, or not in the playoffs broadly, but in these first legs in particular uh, to date? Yeah, I, I think that, I think there's been a number of pretty good um different performances in the playoffs. I, I think just the goal that Giovinco scored and the timing of it at, at a point where you went into that game and you thought the New York Red Bulls um, all of a sudden might um, have a chance to kind of, you know, uh, take the series or put themselves in a good position. I, I think that kind of settled it. That was a really important goal for Toronto to get at that point and, and kind of put the series in a situation where they should advance. So, um, just because of the individual performance there and the ability to to get that goal for Toronto, I'm, I'm going to give it to Giovinco. You're going to go Giovinco. I'm going to say this maybe like arguably kind of like I, I 60% believe this 40% just want to get a rise out of people. Albus Powell. Uh, I'm not sure I saw any sort of individual performance uh, better than the one that Albus Powell put in uh, for the Timbers uh, the, the other night. Uh, I He was outstanding. He was just excellent. Uh, and and I don't think I've seen a, a sort of individual defensive performance that's been better, uh, you know, under uh, a, a, you know, decent amount of duress. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, there just haven't been a ton of sort of individually great attacking performances either. So, uh, you know, hey, look, I mean, I, I, you can definitely find guys that probably had a better game than Elvis. And so I, I'm not going to die on this hill. Uh, but I just want to give him another shout out because he was really, really good uh, against the Dynamo. Um, okay. Uh, best goal, the individual best, the single best goal you saw, you, you may have foreshadowed this, uh, somewhat more subtly than I do. Uh, <laughs> when you said Jovinko was your MVP, is that your best goal as well? Yeah, I, I think that that is the, the best goal so far. I think that free kick, um, you, you see it a lot with Jovinko, so it, it almost becomes, um, you know, kind of old. You see it every, every week. It seems like sometimes with him and MLS, but, uh, it was quite a free kick and it came at a really big moment. Yeah. Quite a free kick came at a really big moment. Uh, but I'm going to go with Harrison Offals goal. The, 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 the crew's fourth to sort of put that one away. Uh, it was, and not necessarily because it was, I mean, it was a good goal, uh, in, uh, you know, I mean, just, just from, you know, the, his, his dribble and finish to, to do it. But it was also hilarious, like because the NYCFC defense, the play started and you're like, OK, there are literally like four defenders between him and the goal. They're, they're, this isn't going anywhere. Right. And then it was like it reminded me of if you ever played that super old football video game, like Super Tech Mobile, 
it was like Harrison Awful called their play and just they all just like fell down. It was spectacular. <laughs> and in like one moment you were looking at four NYCFC defenders between he and the goal. And then he was just all of a sudden one on one with Sean Johnson. You're just like, oh, oh, hey, how's it going? Um, and so that was that was pretty fantastic and kind of funny. It made me yelp on, on the couch. Uh, and, and that was fun. Uh, not biggest goal anymore. We are going biggest G O A T. We're going the biggest goat, uh, of, of the first leg that you've seen thus far. Who would you in from all the first leg and, and not like, uh, you know, not the initialism G O A T for greatest of all time. The, like, act, you know, the, 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 the metaphor with the animal, like that, like that's the one, uh, that's the kind of goat we're talking about here. Who's the biggest goat? Uh, of the the first legs i just want to give this to like vancouver's entire attack or or, or carl robinson in, in general because I, I i just don't understand uh what vancouver's approach was in that game or how they were unable to to put together more of an attack eh, when they're at home and, and that's when you want to potentially get a win in a series so I, i'm not sure what approach they were going for in that game and uh like I said before, I made for an awfully boring game with the way both teams played. And look, I mean, the, the Sounders had a bunch of guys that were not playing in that game. And that's what made it look even worse. Yes. But the Sounders were without Ozzy Alonso. I think uh, Svensson only played half an hour or so. Uh, no Victor Rodriguez. No Clint Dempsey. Uh, I mean, they were they were missing. They they started Harry Ship and 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 and, jo- and Jones on the on the wing. And so yeah, I mean, and Jovan Jones on the wing. And so it's just like. Yeah, how are you taking that home game against a really, really weakened Sounders team that you would have a legitimate opportunity to sort of put behind the eight ball if you can get a couple goals on him and just coming out and playing bunker ball? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I, I, like, I, I feel like it, you know, I'm going Taylor 12 on this. What are we doing here? What are we doing? <laughs> um, but, they, I mean, but it was that level of, of just mystifying uh, from from Vancouver. So I would agree with you, but because I've got to choose somebody else, I'm going to choose somebody else. And that is Sean Johnson who I don't like for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks at a time. He can look like basically a U.S. men's national team quality goalkeeper. And I mean, given that doesn't take a ton these days, uh, but nonetheless, like even a good U.S. men's national team quality goalkeeper, he can be outstanding. And then he'll have games like he had yesterday where he just gave up just like a, it was just a comedy of errors. I mean, there were a couple sort of like soft ones. There were a couple like not great rebounds. One of them was a genuinely tough play. So you don't give him uh, too much, too much flack for that. And then, I mean, the, the third goal was just hit right at him. And it's like, I mean, he basically like volleyball bumped it up into the top corner. I don't know, man. <laughs> that was something else. Uh, it, it's it, it's not some all the time that you see a guy who can be that consistently good and then just have the world's biggest shockers. Uh, and he definitely had one of those uh, on on Tuesday evening in Columbus. Okay, predictions. That's all we have before the show's over. But predictions. Time to put our stakes down. Our stakes down on where the Timber season is going to go from here. Um. I, I, I'm going to be the pessimist and that's because of the injuries. The injuries are, are, are really uh, worrisome to me. And I'm just not sure how many of those Timbers players are going to be back in the lineup. I, I'm concerned that the majority of them 
the players that are questionable could be out. And I think that's going to pose a real issue for the Timbers, even at home at Providence Park. And because the Dynamo have been a little bit better on the road and have been able to grind out draws, and that's all they need, uh, I think this could be a, 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 this might not go the Timbers' way. So I'm going to be the pessimist. I'm going to go 2 2 draw. Um, both these teams can score goals. They, they've shown that. Uh, but a 2 2 draw is not going to be a good result for the Timbers this time around. And the Dynamo will advance on the away goal roll. Alvis Powell, who had a great defensive game and seems to be playing better and better for some reason, is going to come out on the offensive side and score another one of his uh, surprise goals. And they're always, like, magnificent. Uh, (laughs) Alvis only scores one kind of goal, and it's, like, (laughs) sort of a jaw-dropping one. Um, I am not as pessimistic as you. I, I, you know, my just gut, and this isn't really based on anything much more than my gut, uh, is that the Timbers are going to be pretty aggressive with these guys and that those who are, you know, the non-Mabiellas and, uh, and you know, the, the one that I think is most questionable is Guzman. Uh, but, I, you know, I mean, if I were to bet, I would think that, that Nagby and Blanca would, will probably be in there. Uh, and if they, they are, I'm going to go ahead and say the Timbers are going to win. Uh, they're going to win by, three, by a score of 3-1. to one. And because I want to have some fun and just because I want to cement his legend, Alvis Powell is going to score a hat trick. No, 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 no. Uh, although that would be legendary uh, <laughs> if it did happen. It's going to be Diego Valeri that's going to have the legendary hat trick uh, that's going to carry the Timbers into the Western Conference Finals. Okay. Uh, we're Soccer Made in Portland. You can find us every week, uh, not only on OregonLive.com, not only on Sometown Footy, but if you want to subscribe, you can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, that's Janie Goldberg. I'm Chris Reifer. Uh, thank you all for your questions and all of that. Uh, enjoy the Timbers matchup against the Dynamo on Sunday, uh, and we will be back here next week to talk about all of that, and hopefully, if things go well, to look ahead to the Western Conference Finals. So enjoy the game, and until then, of course, as always, take care. <laughs>